we're going to be looking at 1 John 4. Now really, this is kind of going to be my text that I return to frequently throughout the, the series on the Apostles' Creed. But let's look at it together this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was manifest, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. I told you last Sunday that truth is under attack. We know that. The evidence is all around us that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. And he's doing his best to undermine the very foundation of our faith. If you're not careful, the enemy will deceive you and lead you astray into error. Now there's some issues in life that are negotiable, right? Like whether or not you have pews or chairs in a church really doesn't matter. Now I know we went through that in the past, right? But it really doesn't matter, right? You can worship God on a folding lawn chair. You can worship God together sitting on the floor if you need to. That's, but churches have split over that, right? really doesn't matter this morning whether or not you sing from a screen or you sing from a hymnal. really doesn't matter. Now, I know we all have our preferences, but I hope this morning that you would not separate yourself from other Christians because of an issue like that. But there are issues that do divide or should divide. Whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, that's non-negotiable. Whether or not you sing from a hymnal or from a screen really doesn't matter, but that matters. I wish I could express how important I believe Romans chapter 14 is for the Christian life, for the church, but we'll save that for another Sunday. But as I said, there's some issues we should never divide over, 
But then there are other issues that are absolutely essential, and that's what the Apostles' Creed helps us to see. Now, the Apostles' Creed starts out with the words, I believe. What does it mean to say you believe? Now, there's various levels of belief, right? So like if I said to you, or maybe you said to me, do you think it's going to rain today? And I would say to you, well, I believe it is. Now, that statement there implies some uncertainty, uncertainty, right? I I believe it's going to rain today. Now, that belief may be based on James Spann. Perhaps James Spann, I watched him, and he said, there's a 55% chance of rain today. Now, that's slightly more than 50%, but, you know, even James Spann is implying some uncertainty, right? He's not 100% certain it's going to rain today, just 55%. So I say, I I believe it's going to rain today. Well, when I say that, it's signaling that I could be wrong about that, right? Or perhaps you would ask me, you know, um, or maybe I could tell, put it this way. I, I could say to you, I believe the Ohio State Buckeyes won the national championship in 1955. I believe that. And you get on your phone and you pull up the list of Ohio State national championships and you would find I was actually wrong. It was the 1954 Ohio State Buckeyes that won the national championship. And, and, and you might say, well, no, they actually won that 1954 national championship. You show it to me. I may have thought I was correct, but in that case, my statement of belief was really a synonym for I think so. Now, if I would have said I know, that's a little different, right? That's implying certainty. But there's, of course, another level of belief. Now, perhaps I said to you, do you believe that people can jump out of an airplane with a parachute on their back and survive when they hit the ground? And you say, yeah, I believe that. I mean, seen it happen. And then I hand you a parachute. That's another level of belief, right? Because then your belief actually has to cause you to change, to act on your belief. You see, it's not enough for us to say we believe something, not enough to just say we believe it, but we must act on what we believe. So when we start out the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe, this is not just a head knowledge. Because we believe these things, we must act on them. For instance, we know in the book of James, James says that, he he said, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want it to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, faith without action is really pointless. Even demons believe, but they're not going to heaven. So James' point, now think about it for a moment. James is the brother, the earthly brother of Jesus. And he says, I believe in Jesus so much that I act upon it. Now can you imagine growing up with your brother and coming to believe that brother that you grew up with 
is actually the Son of God. James believed, and he acted on it. That's real faith that works. You see, the Christian life is a story of faith, of coming to faith, of keeping the faith, of finishing the faith. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the Apostles' Creed starts with the statement, I believe. Now, believing can be risky business. You know, we want to believe in people, but all of us have been disappointed by people, right? We want people to believe in us, and if we're honest, all of us at some time or another have probably let some people down. One writer put it this way, he said, Marriage is really a faith bond between a man and a woman who have come to know, trust, and believe in each other. Precisely because life can be uncertain and painful, we look to people, institutions, and ideas to both believe in and to hope upon. We do that, risky though it is, and despite the fact that it makes us vulnerable, because we genuinely think that in this person, or in this organization, or in these ideas, we will find the security for things which we cannot control ourselves. So when the creed starts out by saying, I believe, it's asking us to trust and believe and belong to something beyond ourselves. I believe. It's not just trusting in God. It's about trusting in Him and allowing Him to take hold of us and to transform us. I believe. I believe. Now, I'm going to throw this in this morning. I thought yesterday as I was preparing, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this in just for Jeff this morning, all right? Um, he, he, he's been riding my case about Wesley. So I'm going to throw this in for Jeff this morning. So, but, but a classic illustration of this whole idea of faith really having to result in a transformation of what we do. John Wesley was raised by Christian parents. His father was a priest. His mother was, was a woman who loved God. John Wesley became a priest at as a teenager, he becomes a priest. He goes off to Oxford University. He ends up teaching Greek at Oxford and other subjects as well. He, he then goes from Oxford University, winds up going to, comes to the United, well, to America, to the state of Georgia as a missionary in order to convert the Indians. And some of you are familiar with this story. But on the way to America, in the middle of a storm, He's fearful. He realizes that he does not have faith. He sees Moravian missionaries who are peaceful. They have peace. They have faith in God. On the return trip back to England, his, his, his time in the United States was really a disaster. On the way back, again a storm. And Wesley writes in his journal, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians. But oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. So here's a man who went, came to, to, the, to America to convert the Indians, and he himself was unconverted. 
But not long after that, on May 24th, 1738, he wrote in his journal those famous words telling of how he went unwillingly to a meeting where the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans was read. And as it was being read, he said, at a quarter to nine, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he said, he said about a quarter to nine, my heart was strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And it was at that point, John Wesley truly experienced the transformation that comes by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He'd worked, but he didn't have faith. You see, we must have faith that works, and not the other way around. Even before that meeting, he'd believed in his mind that God could forgive sins. But then he experienced heart, what he called heart religion, where he believed it in his heart. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of God do you believe in? A.W. Tozer said, of course, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What kind of God do you believe in? When you think about God, what comes to your mind? I hope you've noticed that the Apostles' Creed is Trinitarian. If you, if you read it, you'll see talks about God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one God who exists in three different persons, three distinct and yet equal persons consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's difficult to get your mind wrapped around the Trinity. It's easier for us to say what the Trinity is not than it is for us to say what the Trinity is. For instance, God is not three faces, three gods. He's not a hierarchy of one big God and two smaller gods. It's difficult for us to balance the unity and the diversity of the Trinity. For instance, if you overemphasize God's oneness, you end up saying something like the Father, Son, and the Spirit were simply three costumes or three masks that God would put on at different times. This is the heresy of modalism. Somebody, uh, T.D. Jakes is a modalist. It's a heresy saying that, you know, maybe in the Old Testament, that was the father. He wore the mask of father. In the New Testament, he wore the mask of son. Now God is Holy Spirit. Modalism. Church fathers dealt with that. It's part of the reason for the Apostles' Creed. If you over, overemphasize God's threeness, you end up with three gods. That's the heresy of tritheism. Mormons and seven, Seventh-day Adventists are examples of groups that advocate a form of this heresy. So there's three gods, not one, in tritheism. If you don't end up with tritheism, you might end up overemphasizing God's threeness and end up with a, a senior god and two lesser gods. That's the heresy of Arianism. Jehovah Witnesses are Arianist. They teach a form of it. 
that there's one big God and then there's a smaller God the Son and then God the Spirit. All those are heresies. In 1 John 4, the passage I read earlier, all three members of the Trinity are mentioned. In the book of Matthew, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, He gave us instructions to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you try to read that verse in a non-Trinitarian manner, you end up with some theological absurdities. Why would you baptize someone in the name of a divine person, the Father, a holy creature, Jesus, and an impersonal force, the Holy Spirit? Or if modalists are correct, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just three costumes worn by a single divine being, why would Paul close the book of 2 Corinthians by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you? Why bother needlessly repeating? (laughs) Why would God needlessly bless believers under three different names for no reason? Or if you read it in an Arian way, why would God's blessing be mediated through two lesser gods? See, it doesn't make sense. You end up in theological absurdities. But when we talk about God, God is one. But He's also three distinct persons. Three distinct persons who perform three different, yet cooperative, cooperative, there it is, roles. The church father, Hippocrates, said this. He said, the Father decrees, the Word executes the decree, and the Son is manifested by the Spirit through whom we come to believe in the Father. The dispensation of harmony leads straight back to one God, for God is one. It is the Father who commands, the Son who obeys, and the Holy Spirit who gives understanding. The Father is above all, the Son is through all, and the Holy Spirit is in all. We cannot think of God in any other way than as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as you begin the Apostles' Creed, and, we're, and it's, gonna, it's telling, we're saying, I believe. You're saying you believe in one God who's revealed Himself in three persons, who is three persons in one. And it starts off by saying, I believe in God the Father. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father. To call Him Father is to say that the God that we serve is a personal God who loves and watches and cares for us. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Are you still awake? We have a personal God. If the Creed said simply, I believe in God, the Almighty creator of heaven and earth, it could be an Islamic creed. But it doesn't say that. It says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is our Father. To me, the word Father is a beautiful thing. I have a good father who did his best to raise us children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. He's a hard worker. He could, have, he could have lived off the system because of his disabilities all his life, but instead, my dad was a hard worker who loved his children, did his best to raise us right, as I said. 
But I realized this morning that that's not true for everybody. Some people had a father who was abusive. Others of you may have had a father who was absent. You may not even knew your father. So when we say we believe in God the Father, perhaps calling him Father may be difficult for you. Because your image of a father is imperfect. Now, my dad is not perfect, and I'm not a perfect father. Sometimes earthly fathers fail, and we fail badly because of sin. You have to remember, whenever you use theological language, in a sense, it's, it's an analogy in a sense, because our finite language cannot fully articulate everything about God. doesn't matter what language you speak in, you can't fully approximate what God is like. All that being said, we have to accept the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself as Father, and we don't have any right to petition for a change. There's people that do, people that have. Some people have changed the Apostles' Creed because they don't like that term Father. But you can't change the image of God as Father without doing serious damage to the doctrine of God. He is our Father, and he is a loving Heavenly Father. And instead of us taking any negative perceptions of fathers, maybe because of your father, instead of taking that negative perception of a father and applying it to God, instead what we need to do is understand that God's self-disclosure of his character as being our father, he is the ideal father. And the very fact that we know what fathers, human fathers, ought to be like, we have, that, we have a conception, right, in our mind of what a human father ought to be like, demonstrates that we know an ideal father does exist. And that ideal father is our heavenly father who loves us. So don't judge your heavenly father on the standard of an imperfect or poor earthly father. Instead, we earthly fathers need to pattern ourselves after our heavenly father. You follow? In the Old Testament book of Malachi, all throughout the Bible, God reveals himself as being loving. Especially, it's made clear in the New Testament that he's a loving father. But in Malachi chapter 1, God reminds his sinful people that he loved them. They responded by asking, how? How have you loved us, God? Imagine that. God had handpicked Israel. He'd shown his love to them over and over again, gave them his grace and mercy. But they respond to God saying, I've loved you by saying, in what way have you loved me? I mean, can you imagine your child saying that to you? You say, I love you. And your child say, well, in what way have you loved me? I don't got any evidence of it. I'm not going to ask what you'd be tempted to do at that point. But what should have their response been? They should have responded... By saying, you're right, God, you have loved us. Instead, what they did in, in Malachi's day was they accused God of sinning, of failing. They accused God of being unloving, of saying one thing and doing another thing. They were angry with God because circumstances were dark in their country. And the reason why their circumstances was bad was because of their own sinfulness. But all of us have been there at one time or another where you, where you wonder sometimes, well, God, where are you at? And the enemy comes along and begins to whisper in our ear, well, if God really loved you, 
If he really loved you, this wouldn't be happening. You see, we have a sense of entitlement. We think God owes us more. But God doesn't owe us anything. But yet he's given us everything. Because God so loved that he gave us his one and only son. What more could we possibly need? But yet we have a sense of entitlement that God owes us more. And that's how they were in Malachi's day. And they were angry with God, and their, po- their faith was at the point of being swallowed up by the world around them. They, they were still professing to serve God with their lips, but they lost faith in God. But we believe in God the Father, and He is a loving Heavenly Father. But He's also God the Father Almighty. When you speak of fatherhood... It gives the idea of love and tenderness, nurture, protection. When you talk about being almighty, that you're referring to strength and power. And those two things about God complement each other. If God was a God who was all-powerful, but he didn't show that power, didn't exercise that power in a way that revealed his love and compassion for us, we'd be in a heap of a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? But he's a God of love. He's our Father. But he is also Almighty. And when in the Apostles' Creed, when it says Almighty, really that's that's a word that just is it kind of encapsulates everything about God's attributes. He's omnipotent, he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he's he's everywhere, he's omnipresent, he's immutable, he's all those things, he's almighty. As kids, we sang that song, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. He's almighty. He has no limits. Stories told, and I'm drawing to a close here. Stories told, President John F. Kennedy was out walking his daughter one day. With his daughter, not walking his daughter. He was walking with his daughter. And she saw a gumball machine. And like every child who ever sees a gumball machine, she wanted a gumball. Now, this is back a number of years because the gumballs were only a penny. I've never seen a gumball machine for a penny. But she asked her dad for a penny. And the president reached in his pockets, and he didn't have a penny. And he told his daughter, he said, I'm sorry, I'm out of pennies. This story was told by a secret service agent, secret service agent. And he said this. He said he was the president of the United States, but he could not find a penny to give to his daughter. You see, earthly fathers have limited abilities. We run out of pennies. But you know what? We serve God the Father Almighty and He will never run out of pennies. Aren't you grateful for that this morning? 
There's never going to be a situation that you and I are going to encounter in which God is going to say, you know what, I don't have enough power to be able to help you in that situation. That's never going to happen because we serve God, the Father Almighty, and there's nothing that He can't do. So what's all this mean to us? Well, let's go back to Malachi for a moment. I told you how they accused God not loving Him. And the real reason for their condition was their own sinfulness. But God says to His people in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, He says this, He says, As a son honors his father, and a servant his master, if I them am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? A son honors a father. If I am a father, where's my honor? I mentioned my father earlier. I knew my dad loved me because he told me. But my dad also showed me his love, still shows me his love. One of the things that I've realized since I became adult, an adult is that one of the evidences that my dad loved me was that when I was a child, my dad just didn't let me get my way. You know that's really one of the signs that you don't really love your children if you just let them have their way all the time? Some people want to say, well, I love my kids too much to discipline them. It's actually the opposite of that because if you really loved them, you would discipline them. God says that He disciplines us because He loves us. It's an evidence that you love your children. And my dad loved me enough to discipline me. Now, was there times my dad disciplined me too harshly? Probably. Was there times in which I didn't get disciplined when I should have? Of course not. No. <laughs> Obviously, there was. And since I've become an adult, I've thanked my dad for disciplining me. Why? Well, because a father, when he disciplines his children, now I'm not talking about abuse, but when a father disciplines his children, he's showing his child that he actually cares enough to teach them respect. Because when you love someone, you'll honor them. God is our Father, and we should respect and honor Him as our Father. Why? Because He first loved us. Well, so God loves me, that means I can go and I can do anything I want to do because I'm secure in His love. If we can't earn our, His love by our obedience, can we lose His love because of our disobedience? Well, the fact of the matter is we should respect Him as our Father and show Him honor. And God asked the people in Malachi's day, He said, if I'm your Father, where's my honor? Where's the respect that you owe to me? You see, now, Israel would have said, no, God, we respect you. In fact, God, we respect your name so much that we never even say it. 
And they wouldn't. They wouldn't say the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They would not say that. And that's why in the Bible, almost every Bible, except for I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible, translates Yahweh in the Old Testament as the Lord. Because Israel would say Adonai instead of Yahweh. Because they respected the name of the Lord. And so they would have argued with God, God, we, we respect you, we honor you. God's not looking for us to just merely go through the motions. He wants us to love and respect Him out of our hearts. St. Augustine, church father Augustine of Hippo said this. He said, idolatry is the use of what should be worshipped and the worship of what should be used. And how do, how do people so often come to God? They treat God as if He's the great vending machine in the sky. That God, we want to use you to get your blessings. But they don't want to worship him. They don't want to live the way he wants them to live. It's been said that God is the idol of all too many who call themselves Christians. Now think about that statement for a minute. God is the idol of all too many who call themselves Christians. You see, we treat God as if he's biddable. Like if you just put enough money in the vending machine in the sky, God will give us what we want. You just go through the right motions. So what did the Jews do? They didn't use his name in vain. Oh, wouldn't think to do that. They'd, they'd wear all the right garments. They'd put the phylacteries between their eyes and on their garments, on the tassels of their garments. And, and, and they did all those things. And you had the Pharisees who were so diligent to do everything right. But they were far from God in their heart. We try to use what should be worshipped. So let me ask you, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Is he your father? Have you surrendered your life to him? Are you walking in obedience to his commands? Or are you living as a practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who would never tell you they don't believe in God. They just live like they don't believe in God, like God doesn't exist. No fear of God before their eyes. Remember, he is our loving heavenly father but he is also almighty. And you don't mess with the almighty. And I say that carefully. God is both our heavenly father who loves us, but he's also the one who is all powerful, who someday will bring judgment if we do not repent and turn from our sins. Now, that's the fearful side of Almighty. But you know, I'm thankful this morning that He's Almighty. And that's a great comfort to me because I know that no matter what circumstances I face, He's able to do what? He's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. I can think some pretty awesome stuff, but I can't even think to God's ability to do. He's almighty. 
Let's worship Him and believe in Him as our Father Almighty. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, I thank You this morning for Your love. Thank You for loving sinful people so much that You gave Your Son to die in our place. Thank You so much for Your grace and mercy. Lord, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Help me to live like I believe that this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.